morning, everyone. We're in May, which officially means weekends start getting thinner around here, because I think in Vancouver, May is when summer starts uh, to start. So uh, good to see you. Good morning. I want to take care of one thing just right off the top. One of the things that comes with uh, when, you, when part of your work involves standing in front of people on a weekly basis, that means people notice any changes that you may make to your face. And so just to prevent any hundred conversations afterwards, just clear a few things up. Yes, this is a real mustache. Yes, I meant to do this. Um, yes, in fact, uh, we now have two pastors with a creepy mustache. And so we'll, we'll see what uh, Terry and Nelson do, but that'll be up to them. Um, Okay, so we're, we're in the Sermon on the Mount. We're in, we're in the midst of a year-long look at apprenticing to Jesus. And uh, earlier this week, I was pan- painting with Dan Klenner. And when you, when you work along someone, when you've got a lot of time to paint, uh, you get into all kinds of good stories. And I, I just so enjoyed uh, getting to listen to Dan and said, Hey, do you want to share a bit of your story, what's going on? So Dan, why don't you come up? Uh, Dan's a, uh, a drummer, musician. He leads worship here often. Um, you're also like, a, what is this? Like an engineer and a music producer. You make albums. Yeah. And uh, so there's too much that's, that's been going on in your life, what God's been doing in, in I don't know, the last half year or so. Um, but can you share a little bit? Uh, what's, what has God been doing in your life? Um, well, thanks for having me up here. That last song was great also. Thank you for that. Um, yeah, I don't know. I think most of it has been uh, actually uncomfortable, um, which has led Tegan and I to uh, um, a less comfortable life, um, which I believe is what God called us to in Vancouver. Um, but that was kind of the, that was kind of the thing. Um, we were we were really comfortable. We have we have um, we both are self-employed and and we're doing kind of what we like to do. Um, actually, what we love, our passions um, that God has put in us. Somewhere along the way, we've lived in Vancouver for five years, and you know, got our Netflix monthly subscription. Got our Spotify monthly subscription. Um, you know, I we have the mountains here. Um, we have a lot of great brew, a lot of great coffee, a lot of great cocktails, a lot of great food, um, lots of great friends, you know, good community. And, and somehow um, God was kind of just like, <laughs> it wasn't removed from the situation, but we were finding ourselves like really not content, although we seem to be working towards this, you know, success. The success. What, what is success? I don't know. But we were working towards something, um, but weren't happy. Weren't like, you know, I'd come home from work and um, we'd eat and crack a bottle of wine, nice wine, you know, organic. It's great wine, you know, we're eating organic kale and um, we got it. We got it figured out, you know. And and uh, and then we, you know, put the kids to bed and watch something Netflix, you know, 
there's lots of great stuff on Netflix. And then we just go to, be just go to bed and we're, we're on our phones, Instagram, and then kind of just like feel, you know, like there's just like not something was missing. Something's missing. Like what I, we're doing it all, I think. I mean, we're, you know, we're like, I have a good relationship and we're, we're trying to pursue our passions in Christ, but something, something. So there's this discontent, I think, is the, is the one word that was just growing and growing and getting really uncomfortable. And, uh, and I think um, about a couple weeks ago, we kind of, I don't know how to say this without it saying like a Billy Graham-y, but kind of rededicated our lives to Christ in a way that involves complete relinquishing of, of will, um, which is a really, really important key, I think, um, that we haven't really, we're doing, God is in our lives, but we weren't living our lives for God, you know? Um, and so I think the discontent, and then um, when we started, when we started um, moving a couple of weeks, like three weeks ago, um, we took down our TV because I had to patch up our wall because we had a, a lot of holes in our wall um, in a rental. So, and then we didn't have the TV and we started like talking more. We're just like, oh, this is logically way better than watching TV. Um, started growing more in our relationship. Um, just like simple technical things. I mean, a TV obviously is, is a, something that is, you can have in your house, house and still be a healthy Christian, but we were ab abusing it, just like a lot of other things. It's more like the routines of our lives were just like we were just, we weren't healthy in the routines. The problem is that Vancouver, it's kind of like that's, is like the healthy lifestyle in Vancouver, or whatever, health, what does healthy mean? I don't know. Questioning those, six, what is success? What is true health? You know, um, what does it mean to be a follower of Christ? Because, you know, you can be like, oh, well, you pray the prayer and then you're in. But maybe it's our, our definition of what following Christ is, being a believer. Maybe that's just gotten a lot lower, you know? Um, anyways. Uh, I loved... Uh hearing this bit and, and the other bits that you shared, and it reminded me of something Scott said even last year, where we've, every now and again, we'll come back to our mission, which is to see Vancouverites transformed into followers of Jesus, becoming like him, and practicing his way in every sphere of life. That's why we exist, to, to see that kind of transformation. And then and Scott asked the very penetrating question, what are we seeing more of? Are we seeing people transformed? Are we seeing Vancouverites transformed to followers of Jesus? Or are we seeing followers of Jesus transformed to become more Vancouverite? <laughs> and your story is one about, I, that I think is helpful for me and for us, is, is uh, raising something that's hard to see and that this, the city and the culture has a way of apprenticing you, shaping you, discipling you, um, and, and your story, you're saying, well, the fruit of that actually was leading me to be empty, even though I had it all. Um, and so thank you for, for sharing that bit. And I believe you. I believe you, and I trust your story, um, because I know you're not just talking. And so this is real. So thank you. Can you, lastly, just because I, th I think people need to know that miracles still happen. You've got a housing miracle. 
Anyone in need of a housing miracle? We're going prosperity here, folks. All right, I see that hand. All right, let's believe in faith. No, but this is such a good, a good story of, of, really, of God's provision, his grace in your life. So can you, can you let us in on that bit? Totally. Well, I got two. A little bonus one in there for you. Um, I'll start with the first one. Um, uh, basically, we have a wonderful 1997 Forest Green Honda CRV. My favorite, one of my favorite cars in the universe. Um, um, can't have three kids in it though, um, but we're not pregnant or anything. I'm just, um, but, <laughs> but um, it's just another thing. Another thing, you know, you can. I'm. I. I feel like I'm a reasonable person. I like logic. I like. I learn like, what I do. I like to know a lot about. Um, you know, when I lead worship, I spend a lot of time preparing, um, and um, I think something that is not logical is the way that God works. <laughs> it's just not logical. It's not circumstantially logical. Like, things that he does doesn't make sense. Um, and so one of, one of those things, and then also that what's not logical, too, is, is the way that he, the joy he can put inside you when, during things that are, you know, during hard, harder things or stressful things that happen in Vancouver. Um, the first one is um, our car, yeah, 1997 Honda CRV. Um, just really, was really not good. I was driving along terminal and then overheated and the car started shaking and, uh, you know, just stuff started spurting out the bottom. Coolant system, basically the, wa- the water pump went in the radiator system, and to, to do that, you have to take off the timing cover belt and, and replace that, which is like a thousand bucks. It's just like, oh great, okay, we're about to move. Um, this, is, this is awesome. Um, and for some reason, I was just like smiling the whole time. I was just like, oh, this is funny. <laughs> God provides, but this is pretty funny. Um, and I just like, I was so aware that in that moment, God came in one of those like wisdom moments where you're just like, you can work really and hustle, Vancouver hustle hard towards something and still not be content. I mean, it's, it seems like simple enough, but it's, it's very true. And crazy stuff can happen to you, like a car can break down on terminal when you're on your way somewhere and you can be content. It doesn't make sense, it's not logic, but um, I'm not sure what happened, but the car just stopped leaking water. It was leaking really bad, driving it around, leaking. I, was, I was, had a gallon of water. I was filling it up every time. And then all of a sudden, it just stopped leaking. I, I, the mechanic's confused. My dad, who I call for answers, is confused. I'm confused. Maybe something got lodged inside the coolant, but it's like, we're just using our car again. I don't, how does that work? <laughs> um, that's the first thing. Um, the second thing is about... The day after we decided, it was, a long, it, was a, it was a long process to get up to the point where we were like, okay, we're going to do this. We're going to actually try and relinquish all of our will to Christ. Um, and the day of, or the morning after, Tegan, uh, my wife, and her sister were looking at some spaces for their studio, and they're like, oh, why don't we just, a two-bedroom apartment opened up in our, in our same building, and they were... They looked at it just so that they could, like, for their work, for studio space. Um, 
and then later figured out that you can't really run businesses out of uh, <laughs> zoning issues. Um, but basically, I was at work, and Tegan's like, hey, I'm in a two-bedroom apartment. I know we've been, we kind of been looking for one for a while, a long time. Um, um, and uh, I was at work. I was like, oh, cool. She's like, I can't stop thinking about living here. It's like, okay, well, should I come home? And we look at it, and then, so I came, drove home, um, and 15 minutes later, we're like standing in the apartment with the prop property manager, like, oh, this is pretty, pretty dope. Like, like, let's move in. It just seems like pretty strange that we've been really settled for six years, and all of a sudden, and then we're just like, okay, well, this is Vancouver, so we probably need to jump on it. So I just put the girls in backpacks and walked in the rain and then paid the deposit and signed the tenant agreement, and... I was just like, an hour and a half ago, I was sitting at work, and like now we have a two-bedroom apartment um, in the same area, which is what we've been wanting, and close to our friends, and um, and it's just an example of how that's just like not circumstantially possible to do on your own. It's impossible. You can't do that in an hour and a half, but somehow um, God provides. And I think it was a, it was a clear kind of like a. You know, he's got a sense of humor, just like, that's funny, and I provide. <laughs> like, <laughs> stop hustling so hard for in the wrong direction, and just, like, hustle a little bit in my direction, and, I, and I'll provide for you, you know? And, I, and, and you'll be comfortable in the way that I need you to be comfortable, you know? So, anyways. That's good. It's a good word. Love you, Dan. Love you and Tegan, and so grateful that you're part of... This community, maybe a little bit later, I'll invite you up to pray for us. Okay? Let's, let's thank Dan for uh, sharing. Yeah. I'd encourage you to, uh, to, take, to take Dan out for lunch or coffee and, and hear more about uh, his, his story. A couple weeks ago, I was in Ottawa, and I was seeing an old friend, uh, my friend Dave, and we, the rest of us, were uh, teasing Dave because that's what you do with good friends. About Dave has these very these Daveisms, uh, and one of his classic Daveism is so good. He'll, it'll be a, a cup of coffee. It'll be something someone else is saying, something he sees so good, and then the first one goes up, and then the second one goes so good, goes down. Um, it's kind of like his own call and response. Uh, <laughs> And, and, but he, he's, he's a master appreciator, uh, and so this is, this is what Dave does. So good. So good. Um, and times when you're, when you're talking or somebody else is talking, he'll say, that's it. That's it. <laughs> and and it's, it's very encouraging as whatever, whatever you're saying. You're like, I think it is it. Um, <laughs> I think you're right. Or, or just like a, yes, yes. So good. So good. You may have your own phrases when you encounter goodness. It may be so good. Uh, that's just, by the way, that's just praise. That's expressed enjoyment. Uh, so good. There may be other phrases when you experience the opposite of what's good in the world. This week, I was uh, following a story closely because I'm a pastor and, and my work is working in the church. I care a great deal then about other pastors and leaders. And uh, there's, there's, a, there's a story going on regarding divorce and abuse and marriage. 
and what some church leaders have been saying about staying in marriages. And I, and I was getting really hot under the collar. I was not saying so good. I was saying so not okay. We've got a mixed relationship with goodness, good and evil. We have a, we have a, a longing, I think, many of us, a longing for goodness in the world to experience goodness. We have a longing for uh, perhaps we'd say the good life, which uh, often means consuming or experiencing good things. But wanting to be good, I, 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 I'm, I'm not sure about that. The desire, if, if someone was to kind of question you and say, what, what do you most want? Would it be close to the top list? You know, what I'm re- I want to be good. Uh, we may conflate that with being kind of a goody two-shoes or uh, something like that. Wanting to be good. We have a mixed relationship with goodness. And so we come to the Sermon on the Mount, and this is Jesus' vision of the good life. And we've been, we've been listening to this in the Beatitudes, which we came to the end of. Last week at church retreat, we looked at uh, the salt and light text. And now we come to the, a kind of a hinge text that's going to set up where we'll be in the next uh, six weeks and really the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. But the brilliance of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount is that he conveys an understanding of how life actually works. And he doesn't start theorizing and with abstractions. Uh, he, that's not where he starts. He plunges immediately in Matthew 5, 21 and on. He plunges into the guts of human experience. Raging anger, contempt, hatred, obsessive lust, divorce, verbal manipulation, revenge, violence, suing each other, cursing, coercing. It's all the stuff of at least for me, the most energized social media conversations out there. It's all the stuff of soap operas. It's all the stuff of real life. And Jesus takes his very concrete, the guts of human experience, he, t- he takes uh, his aim there because he actually can enable people to know goodness and to become good and not just talk about it. Got lots of talk, but being Good is another thing. He knows how to bring uh, this to bear on life as it really is. And so today's text, Matthew 5, 17 to 20, is going gonna, is gonna to set that up. And then in the coming weeks, we're going to look at these six different scenarios. And, and Steph is going to lead us next week uh, around anger. And that's the first scenario. But uh, where Jesus goes right away is towards the heart. And here, here's a well-known phrase. The line separating good and evil passes not through states, nor between classes, nor between political parties either, but right through every human heart and through all human hearts. And so this is what's uh, in view this morning. So let's hear the, the text together. Um, Thank you for putting the page number in there. Uh, page 677, if you've got a chair Bible, let's go together and have this open uh, and read and hear Scripture uh, with one another. So Matthew 5, verse 17 to 20. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. 
For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So Jesus starts, do not think. Jesus just completed the, the Beatitudes, which are, as we've said, a stunning reversal. Jesus finds it necessary to caution. Don't think that I've come to abolish or to set aside the law or the law and the prophets, which is a way of saying the Old Testament. Don't think that that's, that's my game, that I'm here to abolish that. And Jesus needed to say that because people were thinking that. I mean, they, they couldn't think anything else. Why? Because in Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount here, as it's rolling out, they're not just hearing another list of legalisms and more, more of the same, more religiosity. They're hearing total inversion, upside down. This is such a new word, and it's got a scent of danger on it, and, and, and there's freshness to it, and, and there's a concern that maybe Jesus is actually opposed to Scripture it was so new, so different. There's suspicion around Jesus' posture to the Scriptures. And so Jesus, uh, it seemed, had set himself up against the written Word of God and was actually dismantling it. Jesus says, don't, don't get confused. I'm not here to deconstruct everything. We know Jesus loved the Scripture. He loved the law. The one little thing we know about his childhood, he's 12 and he can't get enough of synagogue and learning and scripture. We know that he loves it. He quoted it up right up until his death. And, and the law it was good. It was given to Israel. And until the coming of the Messiah, the law was the most precious thing in the possession of human beings on earth. And the law consisted of fundamental things like the Ten Commandments and the hero Israel in Deuteronomy 6 and, and this, the great passage on neighbor love in, in Leviticus 19. The law was good and ancient writers knew well that the desperate human problem was around how then shall we live? How do we live? How do we sort through good and evil? We need the law. The law was the only solution to this problem. And so Jesus comes and says, I'm, I'm not shutting that down. I'm here to fulfill it. I'm here to fulfill it. And this is where it starts, I think, getting really, really interesting. The word fulfill means to fill to the full. It means to raise, to, to lift up, to put in place. Jesus is saying, I didn't come to set aside the scriptures, but to fulfill them to complete them, to bring them full circle. Or, I am what the scriptures have been pointing to all along. So, you know this experience uh, when you've come to a board game that you haven't played. Any, any of you who love board games, let's just get a quick survey here. One of the best board games out there. Catan, no argument there. Risk, Co Code names. Okay, 
taboo. Yeah. Carcassonne. Great. So you've probably had that experience where you've not played a game before and you come to it and somebody's reading you the instructions and you get halfway through the first page and then someone says, just forget it, we'll just play. Let's just play. <laughs> we'll just start the game and play and, and you, then you'll see. And you're like, yeah, let's just, enough. <laughs> you, you, you don't really get the game until it becomes visible, until someone enacts and embodies the game for you. you just, let's just start. Let's experience it. And once I see how you play the game, then I'm in. You need someone to embody it for you. It makes all the difference. But, but once the game starts being played and that you know how it's played, you don't abolish the rules. You're like, all right, I get the game, and now I get five turns and you get one. And you're like, no, 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 that's not, we stay in, in the boundaries and the rules of the game. They're just, you realize that the instructions exist for the game, not the other way around. Yeah? There's a, a great uh, way to understand how Jesus has fulfilled the scripture, fulfilled the law. It's one of my, my favorite stories in scripture. This is out of Mark 9. And it's a bizarre story about, it's often called the transfiguration. And it's a mysterious story because Moses and Elijah, the two great prominent figures in the Old Testament, of course, Moses for the law, Elijah for the prophets, the representative people here for the law and the prophets, they're summoned from the Old Testament past, past to give their final witness. And the whole point of the Law and Prophets was to produce a just and a worshiping society, a new kind of people. And Jesus and his kingdom have arrived and is bringing that project to its fulfillment. And so now you've got these two on Mount Tabor. And in a way, they're handing the project off. The, the project is being, the baton is being passed on to Jesus. The, the old witness, the Old Testament, is being handed over to the new witness, the New Testament. But Peter's in the midst of watching this, and he's so confused, uh, which I would be too. Uh, and so he sees the three of them and initially misinterprets the presence of Moses and Elijah, thinking, I've got a great idea. Let's build three shelters. Let's, this is what an incredible encounter. Let's freeze this in time. Make it a little more comfortable for you. Three shelters. Let's just stay here. His, his big mistake was to see Moses, Elijah, and Jesus as approximate equals. But Peter's impulse and that idea actually receives a very strong rebuke. God the Father, voice from heaven says, this is my beloved son, listen to him. Jesus is the word of God. Jesus is what the Old Testament, the Law and the Prophets, was trying to say but couldn't fully articulate. Jesus is the perfect word of God in human life. God couldn't say all he wanted to say in that Old Testament, so he said it in the form of Jesus, in the form of a person. The Word did not become a book and move into a library. The Word became flesh and moved into the neighborhood. 
This is where Mark 9 ends. A voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with him but Jesus only. It's really key. Jesus only. So the final testimony of Jesus and, or Moses and Elijah is to recede into the background so that Jesus stands alone. This is my son. He, uh, we, we, we'd say in fancy language, he's the hermeneutical center of the Bible, which just means we understand Scripture now through Jesus. And we understand our experience through Jesus. Jesus is what God has to say. So uh, here we are, Matthew 5, 17. Jesus wants to clarify his relationship with Scripture. And then he turns it wanting to clarify or perhaps ask questions about his listeners' relationship with Scripture. For truly, verse 18, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. There's a warning here uh, where Jesus says, I haven't come to set, a scripture, set aside scripture, so you two also don't set aside scripture. I've come to fulfill it, but, and, and I'm, I'm not abolishing it, so you too don't abolish it. Don't set it aside. Don't minimize or trivialize scripture. And this is, this is important to note. In following Jesus, we are not left to our own uh, subjective whims, to, to trying to discern how shall I live. Rather, we are directed to Scripture as our principal counsel. And Jesus warns, actually solemnly, that if you belittle Scripture, you will yourself become little in the kingdom. So don't set it aside. And what does he call for instead of setting it aside? He says, practice. Practice this. That's interesting. That's, that's really interesting. That's what we've been on about this last year, learning to practice the way of Jesus. So let me ask you an uncomfortable question that I've been sitting with all week because I don't know if anyone will ask you this question this week. What is your relationship to Scripture? What's, what's it look like lately? Is, is there one? Is, there, is, there, uh, is it contested? Or is... is their absence? Is there delight? Is there curiosity? What does it look like? Jesus continues, verse 20, For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. So now notice this contrast. The first one that Jesus is warning against is setting aside or taking down. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they did the opposite. They loved to set up what they called fences around the law. They were so concerned about getting it right that there was actually 613 additional regulations created on top of the law. 
So the, the opposite impulse of taking down and minimizing Scripture, there's another impulse that Jesus is warning against, and that is setting up extra rules, barriers, more laws. Do you know anything about these two impulses? These are very ancient impulses of coming to religion. On the one is the, the younger son in Luke 15. He says, ah, there are no rules. Freedom. The only thing I need to obey is my own heart. Ah, religiosity. No rules. And then you've got the older son. Don't break any rules. That's how you please the, the father. Be a good boy. Stay at home. And both, Jesus warns against both of these and says, actually, uh, the, the righteousness that's being called for is one that surpasses this kind of thing. So apparently Jesus is saying, a religious expert is not my template for a fully alive human being. Just good news. Amen? Yeah, amen. That's not, uh, like, like a pastor is not the template for, the, for uh, what I'm looking after. So what, what is surpassing righteousness? What is it? And how do we find our way into that? I think one of the first things that uh, we need to realize that Jesus always takes issues with the Pharisees and religious systems and the establishment is uh, creating a way with God that's um, maybe about proximity rather than trajectory. One of my friends always asks the question, what way are your feet facing? And this is what got Jesus in trouble because there could be someone who's really close to Jesus, a religious professional, a Pharisee, but in fact in their heart are turned away. Whereas you could have someone like really far. You can imagine it. I don't have to go. (laughs) Really far, but turned towards the table. Well, which, which one does Jesus count as intimacy? Well, it depends on which way your feet are facing. You could, you could go to Deacon's Corner, like uh, Maine and Alexander, and be facing. And Jesus says, yep, yeah, you're that far. You'd be in Stanley Park, like halfway around the seawall. It all depends. What way are your feet facing? Uh, keep going. Japan. <laughs> Across the ocean, what way are your feet facing? This was Jesus' way of righteousness. Because the law is about quality of relationship, right relatedness. What way are your feet facing? Another thing Jesus takes issue is, he uses this metaphor with this religious impulse saying, you clean the outside of the cup. Which means you're all about appearance and show but you're leaving the inside of the cup. And so as we're going to see in the coming weeks, what Jesus is most interested in is the source, not just the actions, but the source, the heart of a human being. So we're going to get more into that. For the sake of time, I'm going to skip here to a few invitations. Uh, and we're trying to listen this week. What, what do I sense I'm invited into here? Uh, How might we be invited? A couple of different things here that I'll offer quickly, and and we'll see if uh, this may 
may or may not be for you, but there's a revelation here that there's a difference between that God is law and God is love, which really are, are two different operating systems to work off of. If God is law, then what God is most interested in is uh, where, where your infractions of that law, and he's looking to catch you rather than to heal you. So that's a different operating system. It's also a different operating system than in your relationships. If you are a person who's all about law, um, what's going to happen is you'll be mostly concerned with rightness or correctness, and the trade-off is relatedness. Why? Because uh, to be in a relationship means to receive another person's best and their worst, and if it's a long-term relationship, you're going to receive a lot of that. And you're also going to give a lot of your best and your worst. And in that exchange, hurts uh, accumulate. And so then there's the decision. If I'm a person about, of, of law, then I'm, I'm going to keep record. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep a tally. But as 1 Corinthians 13 says, love keeps no record of wrongs. So those are two different operating systems which leads you then to practice the way of Jesus, which is about forgiveness. Learning to absorb for the sake of love. So the, 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 I just want to raise this up, what Jesus is, is doing here, and I'm, I, I am not doing its service, but it's so significant, the, the holding up of two different operating systems that affect how we relate to God and affect how we relate to one another. God is love. God is not law. The second thing, uh, and, and, and the, this is uh, so huge and so simple in my notes. My next application point is Jesus. Um, but it's important to note in the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount, this is the first time now that he is inserting himself in his own sermon. And everything that's going to follow comes through this filter. Everything depends on being related to him. This is, this is so huge. I'm at a loss for words of, of trying to get it. But Jesus is saying, I'm, I'm not giving you a belief system, but, but a person. This is not about a book, though his view of scripture is incredibly high. It's about a person. This is not a religion, but a person. Do you, see, you hear how simple and revolutionary this is. Uh, I have a hard time hearing this. Uh, I'll, I'll share this story. It's, too, it's probably too personal, but I'll share it anyways. Uh, I was in spiritual direction a number of weeks ago, and for the first 30 minutes of our time together, I was sharing a number of tensions that I'm, I'm currently holding in my life. And my spiritual director was asking me to describe those. And I said, I often feel like I'm working on this end, but I really want to get over on this end. And I, I feel like there's multiple layers. And, and it was this picture. I could just see it, a picture of a tug-of-war. And I was the manager of it. And sometimes I was in it. Um, and, as, and she says, describe that picture. She says, it's exhausting. It's exhausting managing multiple tug-of-wars all at one time. 
And so there's 30 minutes of that, this tension uh, in many ways, in my life in God and in my work. And she said, well, let's, let's prayerfully ask Jesus where he might be in this. And, and knowing because that I talk too much, she says, and let's just have a few moments of silence first. Okay, that's good. And I immediately heard and saw, just in, in my imagination in this frame, I saw Jesus standing at the edge of the scene of the tug of war. And he says, follow me. Turns around and walks out of the frame to where I couldn't see him. And so I told her that, and she says, I wonder why he did that. I said, I got the sense that he really wasn't interested in the game. And that he was on to other things, and he was calling me to follow him. So the problem is, I can't see around the corner. I don't know where he's going, so I can't manage it then. I can't control that. She said, that's interesting. She said, it almost sounds like there's a third way. Yeah, yeah, it kind of does. And I just started laughing. She said, why are you laughing? I said, I'm laughing because I've taught follow me dozens of times. I'm laughing because follow me is, is like the heart of Anabaptist uh, discipleship. Um, I've, I'm laughing because I love that invitation and I couldn't see it or hear it in my own life. I was trying to solve these tensions thinking that that was faithfulness. And the call was, I, I, I just didn't perceive. I didn't, I didn't know that Jesus might actually have something to say about these things. And she says, well, then what does that do to your definition of faithfulness? I said, well, it means going where he goes. She says, and what does that do to your fear of what other people will say about you if you do that? I said, well, if they've got a problem, they can take it up with him. I'm going to follow him out of the frame. And because my wife knows that I'm prone to uh, fear, she texts me throughout the week and says, hey, praying for you that you'll follow Jesus out of the frame. And so in the last couple of weeks, this has been the new invitation. New day. Okay, what's going to happen in this day? What, what, what is the work that I'm going to, I'm going to be about? And, and again, assuming it's in this frame. And the, the call comes each day, follow me, follow me into the unknown. Jesus is going to, in the coming weeks, we're going to hear this phrase, you've heard it said, but I say unto you, which really was my thing. And is my thing. You've heard it said, you're managing all this stuff. But I say unto you, a fresh word, an intrusive word, a laser-like word that cuts through it all, saying, follow me out of the frame. And I think this is such a helpful phrase for those of us who might feel like uh, we've we've actually heard it all. Or we might say, you know, there's a lot of cynicism within the garden of my own heart. Uh... Or, or for those of you who feel like maybe you're on the, your last breath of, of relating to Jesus, I think this is a good word. You have heard it said, but I say unto you. Some of us have heard a lot of things said. 
a lot of noise, a lot of awful interpretation, a lot of twisting of Scripture, a lot of setting up extra barriers. I mean, when the church is healthy, is there anything more beautiful? I don't think so. But when the, when the church is unhealthy, is there anything more toxic? I don't think so either. And so even now, you may have your own list of, oh, I have heard, I have heard it said. I could tell you what I've heard. So I want to affirm those of you who have heard a lot, a lot of it BS, and you're still here. I think the key is the second half of that phrase, but I say unto you, Jesus cuts through the noise and wants to become the focus of your life. When the you have heard it said of your past becomes the center, then I'm stuck rehearsing what was said. I'm caught in revisiting injury. I'm, I'm so committed to deconstruction. This, I, I, I can't convey enough here with, with my own uh, words. I just have this, a sense there's a deep invitation for some today that I say unto you, it, it, this becomes a whole new access for your life to spin around. Especially when you realize, but I say unto you, and you lift up your head and you see who it is that is speaking to you, the most brilliant, most beautiful, most alive human being of all time, Jesus. This becomes your new center. I say unto you. So I, I think the invitation is the same from those words on Mount Tabar. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Listen to him, which uh, we could say then just in close to think about your listening habits. Think about your listening habits. What's getting most airplay these days in you? Like if we were to let me just pull these out here. This, this is usually how it goes for me anyways. Is there a way not to do this every time? There is? I'm committed to this illustration, okay? What gets the most airplay? And if you're to watch your life, going, what, what, am I, what am I most listening to? Because there's ways to be in a conversation and to, to, to most listen to what, say, Greg's words over me or what I'm getting back from Greg. Do you see me? Do you, pay, do you notice me? Will you affirm me? Will you deposit some sort of worth into me? And there's ways to plug into our history and our past. The, the, oh, I've heard it said. I've heard a lot of what my dad has said. Heard a lot about what that teacher said or that previous church said. There's, there's, there's ways to listen 
uh, endlessly to that. Or we could talk about listening to fear. Just, just straight up listening to fear. Listening to shame. Guilt. There's so many ways. You've got an idea? Or do you, you just want to hold it? Okay. Okay. So many ways to plug in all over. And just, just really, it, like, it, actually this thing. In, into that. What's getting most airplay? And the invitation is... Repentance is just the ongoing returning back to the center. This is my son. You've heard it said. You've heard a lot of things said, but I say unto you, church, in the next six weeks, who knows what will happen as we learn to listen. Not just on Sunday morning, but it could be that you, you take an experiment of, I'm going to start my day with 10 minutes of silence. I'm going to base my day not on my speaking or on my device speaking, but on creating space so I can have that intrusion of fresh word. You are my beloved son. Or I've got an idea. Let's get let's get a little conspiracy going today. Uh, there's so much adventure in, in ten minutes of silence. Or sitting with scripture, saying, God, I'm gonna give you another chance. I'm gonna read the, the gospel. We're going to come to the table here. And Dan, I, I wondered uh, if you could come and pray for us. I wonder if there's some, even this morning, who may want to, you use the language, rededicate our lives. Uh, so maybe there's some of us who might want to do that this morning or for the first time. Say, I, I've been listening to a whole lot of other things. Uh, I, I would like to take a step. And it's just, I'm plugging in. I'm, I'm bringing the end, and I'm going to plug it in. Um, and so if that's you this morning, then uh, come to the table. Receive the bread and the body. If you'd like someone to pray with you, we'll have people over there. Could you be praying for people as well? Yeah. So Dan will be over there praying. Uh, if you want to, to say, yeah, I'm, okay, I'm in. I'm in again. Uh, my, I, I'm, I'm taking account for which way my feet are facing. Then, then we want to come alongside you. So, Dan, uh, pray for us, please. All right. Thank you, Lord, for your, uh, your bigness, your infiniteness, and your goodness. Um, I'm constantly reminded of your, um, your strength uh, in this broken city. Um, and 
I, I pray that, yeah, we can, we can walk out of here um, with, with a, a sense, a real sense of, a, of an encounter in you and, um, and the acknowledgement that repentance is an important part of this process. We have to change stuff if we want to get closer to you. Um, and, to do, and to know what to change, we need to listen to you more. Um, and to listen to you more, we need to practice listening to you um, more. And to do that, we need to take time out of our lives. Um, and so it, it does start, Lord, we acknowledge it starts with, with some sort of movement. Um, this Vancouver hustle life is a, is a fluid thing, Lord, but I'm, I'm fully convinced you have great things for all of us um, in store, uh, written in our books. And, and I... You have made no, known to me that the, the. I, it's not the it's not, the evil or the the worst things that are that are the, the biggest rival of the great things you have. It's actually the good things because we have a lot of good things here in Vancouver, and those are distracting us from your greatness. And and the great things you have for us, and so. Yeah, as we come to the table and, and uh, practice this kind of strange tradition that we've been doing for a long time in the church, I pray that you can give us a sense of, of repositioning towards you uh, and, uh, and uh, a renewal. And, and also, it's, it's not guilt, Lord. It's, 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 your, it's your longing for purity in us, which which immediately puts light on all the things that are not of you in us. And that's a good thing, Lord. It's a hard thing. I get it. It's a hard thing. It's a hard thing to do. But we, uh, we want to reposition towards you, Lord. Uh, and I pray as we come to the table, you can just really, really, op- uh, really be known, make yourself more known to each one of us, Lord, in a new way that can result in actual change in our Vancouver lives. In your son's name we pray. Amen.